to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive issues in the history of popular music. Today's episode focuses on neo-soul of the 1990s and early 2000s and how it articulates the place of time within modernity, within genre, and within blackness. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. society, or really anyone who's living under the regime of capitalism, tends to think of time as a commodity one owns and can dispose of by free will. I can give my time to a job for a certain pay, right? So I have uh, time at my disposal, my time, that I then dedicate to working in your office, your factory, your uh, university, whatever, in exchange for a certain amount of, of pay for a paycheck. In this way of thinking, free time is really recreation time. It's meant to recuperate one's powers for further exertion, right? Free time is a way to, uh, to recover from the effort of the time that I spend in labor, in, 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 in work. Now, this idea goes back to Aristotle, as does another notion of, of free time, right? As a time for free people to develop their character, knowledge, and abilities. In other words, free time is the cultivation of the self. So here we have two notions of time in Aristotle, and Marx is going to draw on these two notions, right? Karl Marx and his thinking about capitalism and thinking about time will draw on, on these ideas of, of Aristotle, and it's Marx and Aristotle that we're going to be playing around with in this first segment. Aristotle suggests that basically, uh, this is in, in his politics, there are basically two types of free time. There's the free time for the worker, the slave, right? And that free time is meant for recuperation. And we shouldn't put too much pressure on that free time. He says that these, these workers, um, that, that the, the, the slave uh, contingent in ancient Greece, they work hard. They don't have time in their free time to invest in other pursuits. And so he doesn't, this is when, he, when he's writing, for instance, about theater, he says you can't really condemn uh, the, trivial, the trivial nature of the theater that they enjoy and the music that they enjoy, because it's meant really to just recuperate their powers. It's meant to, to help them relax after a hard day of work. But there's another kind of free time. And in fact... The, the laboring classes, the slaves in ancient Greece, they allow for the production of this other type of free time. And that type of free time is enjoyed by the free classes. And in that type of free time, they pursue the cultivation of the self. This is why we have the term liberal arts. Those are the arts, the, 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 and arts here means really pursuits of, of knowledge, right? Ways of, of thinking and, and things to, to, to think about, like philosophy and ethics and so on. The, the liberal arts are the arts of the free people, thus liberal. This is a time to develop character and knowledge and, and ability. For Aristotle, in this sense, free time is the condition of friendship, good citizenship, and the pursuit of the good life. 
And Marx reads this in an interesting way. He says that when you're talking about antiquity, and we'll get back to this in more detail in a moment, when you're talking about antiquity, you have one group of people who work hard and don't have the sense of free time as cultivation, but only have the sense of free time as recuperation in order for another class of people, the free people, to have this notion of free time as cultivation. But the, the valuable form of free time for both Aristotle and Marx, is the notion of the cultivation of the self, the free time as, as a space of cultivation of the self. Now, what happens in modern times for Marx is that the laborer, the, the worker, becomes personified labor time. That's his quote, writer term, quote, personified labor time. And the reason for this is that time becomes, as does labor, becomes homogenized through mechanization and therefore is basically quantifiable because of, of the way in which we've specialized jobs and vocations and the way in which we've worked with um, increasing uh, technological advancements in order to, to give rise to the mechanization of production by and large, that what this does is it creates a homogeneity, a sameness across production. And therefore, the measure of that sameness is, is time, right? He has two propositions that he puts forward in, in his various writings uh, regarding time, right? One is, quote, the economy of time, to this all economy ultimately reduces itself, end quote. The other is, quote, time is the scope for the development of man's faculties, end quote. And we can see that that one relates back to to Aristotle, right? And so in, in, we have two, two basic ideas here that we're dealing with. On the one hand, in modern society, time is really, an, or the economy is really an economy of time. And we'll, we'll explain how this works in just a second. But the other one is relating back to Aristotle, as we've already seen. He says that in the ancient view of production was simply focused on the better rather than modern concerns with productivity. So in antiquity, embodied time as the measure of value, meaning ultimately exchange value, makes no sense, right? The idea that, that we're concerned with how long did it take you to make that table so that I can have you make more tables in a le uh, lesser amount of time, none of that comes into play in the ancient mindset. In the ancient mindset, I don't care how long it took you to, take, to make a table, whether it took you three days or three weeks, doesn't matter to me. All I'm concerned with here is the quality of the table, the usefulness of the object. Whatever labor it took is on the side of things, right? Um, the labor, uh, each, the labor is about creating a good product that I can use. So the focus here is on use value, he claims in antiquity. That's why he has that formula, if you remember from a previous episode, CMC, right? The commodity uh, gets turned into money or whatever kind of means I can use to buy another commodity. So I sell one commodity so I can buy another commodity because what I'm really interested in is using that second commodity. And so the chain, in the other episode, I sort of said, well, you could see CMC going on forever, CMC, CMC, But in a sense, what Marx really means is that it ends with that second C. That what I'm, uh, what I get interested in is consuming that that second commodity, right? That I I want to find something that is very useful to me, and I use it, and I enjoy it. So if all you want is a, a great table, then it doesn't matter how much time is put in it, at least not to you as a user, 
right? Let's leave cost out of it for a moment. If you get a carpenter to build you a great chair or a great table, you don't care if it's two hours, three hours, three days, three weeks. What you want is a great chair or a great table. And if, but if you're going to sell the chairs and you're buying the labor of the carpenter, now you care a lot. And that's what the modern capitalist system is doing, right? You want that chair to take as little time as possible so you can get as many chairs as possible out of that worker. You want as much of her time as possible for as little pay as possible. You want to exploit her time. You want to find ways to reduce her role so as to maximize her production. Thus, machines do a lot of the brute work. And this has two impacts. On the one hand, it reduces labor time and it reduces the status of the carpenter. In ancient Greece, that carpenter was an artisan, right? In a modern factory, an assembly line worker. And then ultimately, as the machines do more and more of the work, the worker becomes a kind of attendant, just simply watching the machines work. And so, as William James Booth puts it in a very helpful article called Economies of Time on the Idea of Time in Marx's Political Economy, which is published in Political Theory in 1991, he says, quote, capital-free time, uh, I'm sorry, capital frees time in order to appropriate it for itself, end quote. And this is what Booth characterizes as the double bind that Marx is articulating about time. On the one hand, modernity does the world a great favor. Through mechanization, it frees up time. It takes less time to produce than it did before, and therefore you have more time, what we might call surplus time. And remember that capitalism is all about surplus value, because if I'm just paying the worker, if I'm just selling the, the product for what it cost me to get the materials and for the worker to do the work, then I'm breaking even. I'm not making a profit. What I need to do is to have surplus value. The worker has to create more value than I'm actually paying for in order for me to make a profit if I'm a capitalist. Well, what that really amounts to is time that the worker puts in more time than is absolutely necessary for me to break even and therefore I make a profit. So what I'm really purchasing is time. But I'm also, in, so on the one hand, I'm, uh, what, what modernism is doing is it's creating more time because as it becomes more and more efficient, more and more technolo technologically advanced, more and more mechanized, then I'm producing more time. But since time is now regarded as profit, then all economy reduces to the economy of time. And if the point of capitalism is to maximize profit, remember his formula for that is MCM, where what I do is I take money to produce a commodity, but I only want that commodity in order to gain more money. And then that cycle does go on forever because the idea is just to generate more and more money, which means I have to exploit more and more markets and I have to exploit more and more time. And that denigrates the notion of time. That makes it from something that is qualitative, the development of the self, into something quantitative. How much time can I get out of my workers so that I can maximize profits? Now, what Booth doesn't talk about and Marx talks about very little is the way that race plays into this. Because after all, capitalism in the U.S. and, and in plenty of other parts of the world was generated in the, in the early days of its development through slavery, through the idea that not only is time a commodity, but people are a commodity. And in some ways, that logic hasn't totally dissipated. 
the idea is that uh, that workers sell themselves on a market, sell themselves and their most precious element of themselves, which is time. And you can see why that would be. This isn't directly from Marx, but you can see what he's thinking, right? Time is potential. Think of all the times you've said, if I only had the time, I would do X, Y, and Z, right? I would, I would learn to play the piano. I'd learn to, I'd learn to um, fly a plane. I'd, I'd learn to, I don't know, uh, dig deep into ancient philosophy. And we have no right to say which of those is a worthy pursuit and which isn't, because that's the whole point. That is the, the development, the cultivation of the self, a free choice with free time free time to cultivate, right? Uh, the, the word, of course, comes from, from agriculture, the idea of growing something, building something up, making something out of the raw materials that we have, the potential that we have. And so to reduce time from a quality, from a, a set of possibilities of developing the self into a quantity a measure of how much time I can get out of you in order to exploit for profit. This is a dehumanizing move. And of course, nothing is more dehumanizing in the development of capitalism than slavery. Now, what happens as the legacy of slavery is that this issue of time and the relationship to time becomes coded racially. Time and its contradictions get laid upon the black body in a very curious way. On the one hand, of course, there's the legacy of slavery. That in, in the case of slavery, all of the time of the slave belongs to the master. And Marx would probably say that capitalism attempts to do the same thing through sleight of hand, through ways of making you feel like you're involved, like you have ownership, right? That I'm selling my time, and so I'm meeting you in a, a place of equality, when really I'm not. I can't not sell my time if I hope to live. But on the other hand, the cultural status of black people in the U.S. very quickly becomes a signifier of a kind of naturalness, a kind of pre-modernity, that, that uh, black people, by being taken out of Africa, by being brought into the U.S., they retain an element of this pre-modern, um, uh, pre-really rational way of, of living and understanding time. And this gets worked out in various ways. In, in um, minstrelsy, of course, the Jim Crow character, on the one hand, is lazy, has no real conception of time, but on the other hand, has a sense of, of ownership over time, finds ways of getting out of work in order to be lazy and enjoy one's time. Right? And as we've talked about in previous episodes, there's a kind of working class envy of that among white audiences uh, that, that, in a way, Jim Crow represents a kind of freedom, ironically and sadly ironically. Right? But this idea that, that black people are both subject to time and yet have tapped into a kind of pre-modern, more natural freedom of time plays out in curious ways in the history of music, especially popular music. And so now what we need to do is look at genre and how genre plays with time, especially the genre of soul music.
It seems to me that the notion of genre in music has a time element embedded in it. After all, genre comes from Latin genus, which means kind and lineage. And therefore, genre as, as, uh, as a kind of genealogy relates to development. In fact, in one sense, for the modern mind at least, it might even relate to Darwinian evolution. Right? The idea of one genre growing out of the next and adapting to uh, circumstances within the market and so on, and, and therefore either getting stronger or dying out. Right? So some genres, like disco, are emblematic of their moment, but then when those conditions change and, and people turn against it, the genre dies out or mutates into something else. Whereas other genres, like rock and roll, uh, seemingly comes from, uh, from, from various influences prior to it, right? It has various, the so-called five or six streams that flow into the development of rock and roll. And then uh, it becomes this sort of mega genre that conditions all other genres, becomes a dominant genre. Think of the scene in the movie School of Rock, right? Where the, the, sort of ne'er-do-well teacher is laying out this genre map of how various genres and bands relate to each other, right? On the one hand, there's a set of family relations. Uh, black metal is closer to metal than it is to, say, Nashville sound and country music, right? But there's also a kind of genealogical history that he's laying out in that scene, that one uh, band or one style gives rise to another, and, and so there's these web of connections that are both in, uh, a set of, of resemblances in a kind of figurative space of proximity, one genre is similar to another, but also a kind of lineage, one genre develops out of the other. And so time enters the picture. Genre in music arises from a nexus of composition, marketing, criticism, and audience reception. And I would say none of these four poles necessarily dominates. An artist or a set of artists and producers will, will create a, a track or a set of tracks that then gets um, taken up by a marketing team in order to sell it. Uh, but the audience doesn't have to respond to it in the way that it was uh, that it was intended by those prior two forces to be responded to right audiences will will add in their own set of understandings and meanings surrounding genre so genre is a categorization but it's also a kind of um activity a process of negotiation among composers and, and producers marketers uh critics and and audience members Genres are inherently not stable, right? Even though when we focus on, say, concert music of the past, we, we sort of think of genres as being relatively stable. But that's a result of education and criticism more than what genres actually are. Genres, as they are living traditions, are subject to constant change, constant um, negotiation between people who want to change the genre, invigorate the genre, and people who want to uh, gatekeep the genre. Genres do not merely emanate from the characteristics of the musical sounds as such, right? That's why the audience and the critics are so involved and marketers are so involved. Genres are, are related to a set of generic boundaries of musical texts and practices within musical traditions, right? So each category has a social basis in music scenes and, and, and the magazines that surround it, the, uh, like I said, the critics and so on. So that means that, that genres involve a sense of time, that they encapsulate time. 
And I think rock and soul are both really telling genres in this sense. They both emerge in the mid to late 50s. And they start off as being more or less novelties. Rock, uh, a sort of, well, depending on how you account for rock, right? Rock and roll. Uh, on the one hand, it's drawing on country elements. On the other hand, on R&B elements. A little bit of doo-wop here and so on. And different, different mixtures depending on what bands you're talking about. So that rock and roll, in a sense, starts off as a kind of marketing term that Alan Freed and others use on their radio shows in order to brand this music that they're trying to purvey, that they're trying to, to sell to audiences. And yet it becomes something more than that. In fact, by the time we get into the late 60s, it becomes one of the dominant genres. And already in the 50s, it's having an impact on other genres like country music and so on and jazz. And the jazz impact is later, of course. But... Um, Soul also starts off as basically a novelty, right? This idea of using um, gospel elements within secular music. In fact, Big Bill Brunsey famously, after seeing uh, Ray Charles in concert, says he ought not to be doing that, right? And he should be singing in the church. What he's doing is inappropriate and somewhat scandalous. And yet, as it becomes more entrenched, soul music becomes emblematic of a kind of authentic blackness. Certainly by the time we get to people like Solomon Burke, Al Green, uh, and so on, Marvin Gaye in the, the um, 70s portion of his career, the idea of soul is embodying a kind of out-front blackness. And so soul is seen as a um, reservoir of authenticity against the incursions of, say, rock and roll and other forms of, of popular music. And that's interesting, because that means that soul, as a genre, has shifted its identity. It starts off as a kind of novelty genre, a genre that is betwixt the between, right? It's neither quite R&B, nor is it quite gospel. It's a secularized gospel or a, a uh, newly ecstatic form of R&B. And yet... As it progresses over the course of the 60s, in part because of the work of, of Ray Charles and Solomon Burke and, of course, Otis Redding, right? And, and really the institutionalization of soul around certain um, uh, record labels and therefore fan cultures and so on, that soul becomes something else. It becomes something that in a way has always been there, even though it clearly hasn't. Just like rock feels in some ways like it's always been there, even though it clearly hasn't. In the 1990s, a group of artists, in, in a way being sold by uh, Kedar Massenberg, who was at first uh, the, the creator and president of his own company, Kedar Entertainment, and then eventually CEO and president of Motown from 1997 to 2004, a group of artists surrounding this figure became known as neo-soul artists. Massenberg basically started his, his company out of his New York home in 1995, uh, started with some seed money of $1,700, right? And he started working with Stetsasonic, the, the great um, hip-hop group, D'Angelo and Erica Badu. They were some of his earliest clients. He also worked with Freestyle Fellowship and A-plus on the hip-hop side of things, right? It's around this time that he coins the term neo-soul because he heard in D'Angelo the distinct echoes of 70s soul music, of, of Marvin Gaye and, and Hathaway and people like that. Right? Brown Sugar was the first single by D'Angelo, and Massenberg 
gets it on on East Coast Radio, in part through this this label of it being Neo Soul. He has more trouble getting it on the radio on the West Coast, but then EMI, the record label, helps him out by flying DJs and their dates to the East for a D'Angelo concert. Now he's getting more radio play nationwide. So he knows how to work the system, right? He knows how to market. He was quoted in a a relatively long um, Billboard article about Neo Soul from from the time as follows, quote, However, a lot of people don't like the term, so, so he claims that he's coined it. And a lot of people don't like the term because they don't want this music to be looked at as a genre. Because when you classify music, it becomes a fad, which tends to go away. But soul music is soul music. There's nothing really new under the sun. But in terms of marketing today, there's the need to categorize music for consumers so they know what they're getting. So for a lack of a uh, different term, I coined neo-soul, end quote. Now that's interesting. Right? He recognizes genre on two different levels of time. On the one hand, genre can be a marketing term, and he recognizes it in a way that the neo-soul uh, is, a, is a kind of marketing term. But then he says soul is soul music, right? as though that's an everlasting term, that's timeless. That goes on, it endures. So one has the sense here that neo-soul might be temporary, that it might be a niche that will, will disappear, right? As, as he says, that, that fads tend to go away. But with soul music, nothing's new under the sun. So this is soul music, but he has to market it as neo-soul music. After all, uh, capitalism works constantly on promoting the new, the novelty. So the neo indicates that. And yet, Neo-soul, which combines elements of traditional soul, if you want to even call it traditional soul, it's only a few decades old at this point, with elements of hip-hop, right, and modern R&B. So a lot of the electronic drums, uh, and as we'll see in the next segment, different kinds of chord progressions and so on. It's combining this sort of cooler modern R&B aesthetic with an element of of the urgency of hip-hop, and then this invocation of the heritage of the past. So neo-soul as a genre is deeply embedded in notions of time, right? Uh, urgency, driving time forward, uh, respect for heritage, looking to the past, to the already done, and building on the already done. Now again, I think blackness plays a huge role here. In the same magazine article, Raphael Sadiq of Tony, Tony, Tony was asked about neo-soul, and he says, quote, new soul is disrespectful for me, because you're calling something new soul. When did it stop? It never stopped. I understand it for marketing reasons. I get that. But people who really love music can't respect that because it's not new soul. You either have soul or you don't. Now notice how an intangible and extra musical quality, having soul, gets entangled with the notion of genre. Right? In the same... um, uh, the same article, uh, another Atlanta-based um, figure, uh, artist, Donnie, uh, who had recently released an album called From the Color Section, says, the computer age has left us not as organic anymore. So notice, let's compare the Raphael Sadiq from Tony, Tony, Tony uh, quotation with Donnie's quotation. On the one hand, uh, Sadiq is saying, nothing's new, soul is soul, right? You either have soul or you don't. You have this quality, a quality that's often associated, obviously, with blackness. You either have that or you don't. You have that authenticity or you don't. But Donnie sees there's a threat at hand, that the computer age has left us less organic, 
We're more modern. We're more mechanized. There's a Marxist element to what Don is suggesting here, right? We no longer have that sense of cultivation in free time. And that's what, after all, what music's all about, right? What, what uh, commercial music's all about. They're selling you time. If you buy an album, you're buying X amount of time for leisure. Now, you can think of that leisure as recuperating in order to work harder the next day, or you can think of that leisure as cultivating the self. There's room for uh, dispute there. But either way, you're being sold time. And that's what Massenberg is, is uh, recognizing in his discussion of marketing, right? That what he's selling you is not only time as, as a commodity of, of something that you can enjoy in your spare time or your leisure time. He's selling you this strange amalgam of time within the genre of neo-soul. Because on the one hand, there's the, the hip-hop element, the mechanized drums, right? And the, the, as we'll see, studio manipulation that's quite often used in neo-soul. On the other hand, there's this bid for the past, a nod to a past genre that is now posited as timeless, so you have the timely with the timeless, the now with the then, the temporary or the, the, the novelty with the permanent and the, and the forever aspect of soul, the timeless aspect of soul. Let's take a look at how this works out in the details of the music. Soul's concern with time and temporality should be obvious right from the beginning of, of looking at the album covers, at the fashions, at the videos, and of course at the topics of the music, um, or at least the topics of the lyric, and then the approach to the music. Right? Let's start with the topics, right? The, the easy way to brand them is, of course, to say that they're Afrocentric topics, but they mix elements of the traditional and the, the modern 
right? And, and things in between. Uh, so they, they mix elements of modern 1990s at that time, uh, black concerns, with, of course, the overarching um, notion of, of traditions that have been lost that go back to Africa and the nature of that loss, the nature of, of this kind of special nostalgia that we'll return to in a bit. And then, of course, the move through the 60s and the 70s, which maps onto the musical styles, but also to some of the political elements, the return of symbolism and of concerns of the Black Power movement. So, for instance, Lauren Hill in, in Doo-Wop, the song concerns promiscuity, but it posits it as an enduring concern. And we'll come back to this when we talk about the, the video at the end of this segment, right? And, and that, that, that notion of promiscuity has to do with a lack of authenticity, perhaps in a sense, uh, as, as uh, Lauren Hill is obviously very influenced by the 5% nation and by Rastafarianism, perhaps there's an implication here that that lack of authenticity is a giving in to Babylon. Speaking of Babylon, of course, another song off that same album, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, is the song To Zion. Now, of course, in one sense, that's an ode to her son, the son that Hill had with Bob Marley's son, Rowan Marley, a uh, son that they named Zion. But it also includes a great deal of the teaching of the 5% nation, right? A, a religious, just in case this isn't clear, a religious um, group that, that emphasizes the originality of humanity in blackness, right? That all people come from blackness and that therefore um, uh, black people have a heritage an inheritance of being closer to God, right? And so the idea that um, that the black woman is um, is is associated with earth, and the idea of a foundation, right? And part of that plays through in this song. And of course, the five percent nation uh, draws partly on Rastafarianism, so there's a connection there as well. Um, Erica Badu with the song On and On also heavily references the teachings of the 5% nation, including their take on so-called higher mathematics, right? A kind of mathematical symbology wherein things like uh, 360 represents the 360 degrees of the circle and therefore the cipher. Uh, and this is a, a gathering of believers, right, into a circle uh, where they discuss the teachings. This is perhaps an inheritance of from Rastafarian grounding sessions, Right? And it also may very well be the source for the notion of the cipher in, in hip-hop, right? The idea of people gathering in a circle in order to uh, freestyle uh, verses. Uh, and, and indeed, in the 5% nation, each number has a cosmic, religious, and pedagogical significance. It means something. It shows you something about the world. Badu plays this up in the song. She sings, I was born underwater with three dollars and six dimes, right? Three dollars and six dimes, 360. And then she goes on, yeah, you might laugh because you didn't do your math, right? That, that this is going to be obscure to people who don't know. So these are secret teachings, or at least hidden teachings, hidden from most people. In the same song, other lyrics go as follows, quote, If we were made in his image, then call us by our names. Most intellectuals do not believe in God, but they fear us just the same. Right? Clearly, these lines have multiple references. On the one hand, there's the, the reference to the uh, Hebrew and Christian Bible, the idea of being made in God's image. But call us by our names, of course, refers in some way, I would think, to the, the fact that African um, uh, immigrants, uh, forced immigrants, slaves, had lost their original names in, in the uh, Atlantic slave trade. 
and therefore were given other names. This is the reason, of course, that Malcolm X turns his name into X, right? The idea of not having, not using his his slave name. And so this idea of call us by our names gives us that respect. But of course, that's no longer really available to most uh, African-Americans whose families have been here for generation after generation. The next line is a near quote, right? Most intellectuals do not believe in God, but they fear us just the same. The original line is from Wilhelm Reich, who says most intellectuals do not believe in God, but they fear him just the same. This idea that there's still this this element of, uh, well, kind of Pascal's wager, right? Uh, I might not believe in God, but I might as well behave as though there is one just in case there is so that I don't run afoul of uh, divine sanctions. But notice here, if the idea that blackness is connected with God, then Badu is saying that that um, most intellectuals don't fear God or don't believe in God, but they fear us just the same, black people, right? And that, of course, has multiple connotations as well. Uh, the fear of black people being partly part of a systemic racism. The fear of black people is the uh, fear of someone who's been kept down for generations that, and, and, and you know coming at you with righteous indignation. And then, of course, the idea of, of blackness being close to God. There are other more mundane uh, concerns as well in Neo-Soul, right? The typical concerns of, of love and uh, getting through the day. Jill Scott, for instance, in her first album, um, uh, first of all, demonstrates a tie to the past in her obvious influence from uh, spoken word uh, artistry and, and, and poetry, beat, sort of uh, black beat poetry for, uh, from groups like The Last Poets or from artists like Gil Scott Heron. That comes across very clearly in her song or or spoken word uh, performance exclusively, right? Where she's just gotten out of bed uh, with her her lover, um, and they had had morning sex, something that, according to the lyrics, she isn't as familiar with. She goes to the grocery store in order to um, buy food for them to eat, and she's very happy with the thought that he wants her exclusively and that she is... is um, uh, safe in the feeling that she he is her man, but then she, she goes up to the uh, checkout uh, woman in the in the grocery store who takes a sniff of her and says Rahim, right, uh, and recognizes her boyfriend just from the smell, giving away the notion that that he's at, at least he's not always been exclusive, uh, even if maybe he's exclusive now. That that part's unclear. These are more mundane concerns, right? But they are still uh, they're they're she's dealing with this concern within the overarching political uh, um, feeling that is imbued in the spoken word poetry of groups like The Last Poets. You have something similar in Michelle and Deggio Cello's uh, song, If That's Your Boyfriend, He Wasn't Last Night, a song that she got a lot of grief for uh, because it was, as, as critics put it, anti-feminist, this idea of stealing another woman's man. But then the video that she produced for it is fascinating in the way that it has, it, it has all these quotations from women, and it's hard to tell how many of them are scripted and how many of them are actual quotations, and in a way it doesn't matter, but... Um, and Degio Cello allows the, the quotations to override the song throughout. And some of the quotations are about having one's man stolen. Some of them are about having stolen men. Some of them are about regrets and comeuppance and so on. And it paints a much um, more complicated picture that, that our personal lives are political in these ways and that that gets brought out even more within the, the political uh, context of Neo-Soul. 
Of course, timbre plays a huge part of this, right? On the one, the the basic definition of neo soul for many people is that it takes hip hop drum programming and combines it with soul instrumentation of uh, a kind of jazzy guitar and a more or less funky bass and um, and some horns and so on, right? And then there's also often a synthesizer in there and things like that. That's one of the things that's interesting about that first Jill Scott album is that you have this jazz instrumentation, but then you also have the synthesizers that get manipulated more and more. And so you hear the way in which the sound is deformed in a way that's indicative of the 90s, not as a throwback to 70s soul. Um, um, some, so sometimes the songs play it straight in the in the throwback sense, and sometimes they don't. Often they don't. There's something that, especially the drumming, that gives away this sense of modernity. Um, Michelle and Deggio Cello, for instance, often resisted the idea that she was a hip hop artist, in, or or even was schooled in that area. And yet the drum programming and some of her collaborators were obviously influenced by. Um, by hip-hop or came right out of uh, that hip-hop world, and so that sound gets absorbed. Neo-soul is a very absorptive genre in that way, even though in one sense it seems like a throwback. It's absorbing elements of, it's always, it's always staining that throwback element, that nostalgia, with a sense of its own modernity. And of course, Indigo Lucello is a great example of that. She draws very heavily on the funk um, bass styles of the 70s, right? Um, so now, not just soul, but funk is being brought into it. And she's she's an incredibly skilled bass player. And that's always front and center, or almost always front and center in her music. This is, impacts the, le- the music on various levels as well. Um, the drum programming, for instance, and, and the placement of things along the beat. And this is the, the use of microgroove in Neo Soul, right? Partly because of modern recording technology. Uh, we don't need to go into a great deal of detail, but microgroove is the idea that, that we don't tend to, as humans, hit things directly on the beat. It's better to not think of the beat as an exact time point, even though you might have sat down with a metronome and had a teacher try to to, uh, school you in the ways of the exactness of the beat. But really, the beat is not just a pulse. It's not just a time point, a reiterated time point at, at regular intervals. It's a feeling in relation to that time point. And so some people play a little ahead of the beat, some people play far ahead of the beat, some people play a little behind the beat, some people play far behind the beat, and some people try to hit it right in the middle, right? Now, typically, when you're playing with other people, you conform or they conform, uh, you conform to theirs or they conform to your sense of time, usually. There can be slight differences, but usually the idea of, of locking into a micro groove, locking into that feeling of the beat, is locking in together. But modern digital audio workstations, modern recording techniques, allow a great deal of, um, of, of control over that issue. There's a brilliant book chapter um, by, by a musicologist and music theorist named Ann Danielson. The chapter's called Here, There, and Everywhere, Three Accounts of Pulse in D'Angelo's, D'Angelo's Left and Right. And of course, she's talking about the song Left and Right from, from the Voodoo album by D'Angelo. And she shows quite convincingly that uh, they do something that would be almost impossible if they were playing live together, that they they have various parts, a clapping sound, a bass, a drum sound, a guitar sound, that, that many of which, that there are three locations around the beat that are then maintained 
And so when you listen to the song, listen carefully, you'll feel it has an almost jittery quality to it that, that instead of ruining the groove, it deepens the groove. And yet there's something strange about it, right? It works really well. And yet it's not easy to play along to, especially if you're an ultra, uh, a multi-instrumentalist that can switch to the various parts. You can lock in the one part and then it takes a little adjustment to lock into the other. And there's something fascinating about that to me. And it goes back to what we saw earlier uh, when we had the, the comparison between the, um, um, the guy from Tony, 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 and, uh, and, and then the other quotation that said that, that in a computer age, we've lost some of our traditional humanity, right? There's something in this, in what Danielson is, has shown in the micro groove and, and the pulse of D'Angelo, and this applies to several neo-soul songs, certainly not all of them, but several of them. That, that there's this element of a hybridity. Groove, of course, is something deeply human. We suspect that, that machines don't do groove very well. That's why people dismiss elements of disco. But by the time we get into the 90s, machines can be programmed to do groove very well. And here they're doing it in a sort of hyper-well manner. They're doing it in a hyper-human manner, something that's slightly more than human, right? Uh, each thing sounds very human on its own in its relationship to the beat, but the fact that they all are able to maintain their distinguishable, identifiable distance from the exact time point of the beat is something that gives it, like I said, that it deepens it, and yet at the same time makes it something more than human. It's the perfect example of that sense of the throwback to 70s grooves in a way that could only be done in the 90s, and so therefore owing to 90s um, modernity and, and modern techniques. The same applies to some extent, the, the same notion of temporality, at least, applies to um, the use of tonality in a lot of this music. Let's take just a, a few quick examples, right? Uh, the, the tonality here is often wandering, drifted, drifting, uh, undirected, right? It seems static in some ways. It seems like it could go anywhere. And sometimes these are relatively simple um, chord progressions. A good example, for instance, is Brown Sugar by uh, D'Angelo. And if you, you thought there wasn't much of a progression to that song, you could be forgiving because it's just very static. It keeps moving on and on. But there's four chords. There's E minor, A major, B minor, F sharp. And that just cycles through. Now, because we keep coming back to the E minor, it's probably in E minor, but the chords don't really define it in any strong way. You could do that same progression starting on the A. Or any of the chords, really, and you could hear it as a cycle that would work just fine. There are more interesting examples. For instance, sticking with D'Angelo for a second, the song Untitled, How Does It Feel, with that amazing guitar part, the... But notice that the chords there, D major uh, seven, so we, we we clearly are in D in some fashion, but that gets followed by an A minor, not its dominant, which gets followed by a G major seven, which does fit to the key of, um, of D quite well. And then that's followed by a C dominant ninth chord, which can be the lower seventh and therefore function back to the, the D. But the easiest way to really understand what's going on here 
is that inner voice that has this chromatic motion down so that we go from the, the major seventh in the D minor chord to the third in the A minor chord, I'm sorry, the major seventh in the D7 major seven chord, then to the C natural, and then to the B in the G chord, and then to the B flat in the C chord. You don't need to worry about each detail, just notice the voice leading. And that holds together these chords. Right? Another interesting uh, thing that happens in a lot of these songs is just two chord oscillations. Take, for instance, Next Lifetime by Erica Badu, which has an A flat 9 minor 9, A flat minor 9 to a B flat minor 9. And then chromatically walks down, right? Now, when you hear the tune, when, and she starts singing over it, first of all, you, you might ask yourself, all right, well, what key are we in here? It's, is it A flat minor? And then you have a minor two above that? Not impossible necessarily, but it, it seems kind of odd. Then you hear what she's singing, and it's something like... And that sounds an awful lot like what's being implied is an E-flat minor, right? Keep returning to that E-flat there. And that sounds a lot like, like what we would expect, that kind of melodic motion in E-flat minor. And yet, an E-flat minor chord is never played in the whole thing. And so there's a real possibility here, and I think it's the right way to read this, that uh, you have this two-chord oscillation uh, that defines a key where the actual tonic chord never actually appears in the song, right? Uh, it's, it's outlined in the melody and yet never actually appears in the song. Something similar, but a little simpler, happens in Lauryn Hill's doo-wop, where again, it's just a two-chord uh, oscillation. Even a 5-1 progression can be made to be somewhat static and off-kilter. For instance, in Erica Badu's On and On, where you get this figure over and over again, right? It's just a, a B7 um, chord with a sharp 5 that then goes to an E minor 7. And so you can say, well, that's clearly 5-1 in, in E minor. It's not that big of a deal. Except notice what's up top. In the first chord, that sharp 5 is the G, right? Or really an F double sharp, but a G. And then that goes to the E minor 9, which has the F sharp at the top. So the note that you expect to be over the E minor, which you sort of expect is, right? Where the F sharp would have been over the B and the G would have been over the E minor. But instead you get the reverse. Right? And most of the song is just those two chords. And so in one sense, it's very static and very simple. In another sense, there's something kind of interesting going on there, even if it's small, right? Now, of course, there's also the look, and that's perhaps in some ways the most famous element of uh, neo-soul for people who don't listen to neo-soul, right? Plenty of people in the 90s would have been very familiar with that look. Now, that's an important part of the neo-soul aesthetic, it seems to me, and it was bound up in the styles cultivated by the artists. To some extent, we might be tempted, initially at least, to dismiss this as a non-essential component of artistry. I mean, to a large extent, the 90s encouraged Generation X to view fashion as being largely an aside, 
right? That was part of the whole jeans and t-shirt style of alternative rock and the jeans and flannel style of grunge. Even megastars like Bono had a simple leather jacket to go with his jeans and Whitney Houston had the leather jacket, the white t-shirt, uh, right? And that was accompanied by, again, the ubiquitous jeans, but all that's deceptive, of course. They, those were still fashions, and corporations monetized even the grunge look as quickly as it could. And all of these fashions signified. They symbolized deeper meanings than simply what was revealed on the surface. Clearly, that's what symbols do, right? They point beyond themselves to something not readily apparent and yet deemed more meaningful. Lady Macbeth's spot that can't be rubbed out, right? Out, out, damn spot represents more than a nightmare and more than a hygiene issue. It represents the step too far that she took in plotting a murder, a stain upon her soul that can't be removed, a mark of deep remorse that she didn't expect to feel that kind of remorse. And yet she can't sustain it, has to kill herself. The symbol tells us more than her mere expression of grief could. Fashion and visual elements of neo-soul, I would suggest, often operate on the symbolic force of time. Right. And, and that, by the way, I guess I didn't make the point that applies to the tonality we were just talking about. That sense of drifting tonality gives us a sense of a lack of a clear sense of, of time, even though basically the way that the harmonic cycles work are in four measure, eight measure groupings. Right. We just go through those four chords or two chords or whatever in these regular intervals regularly spaced intervals. And yet, because the harmony drifts the way it does, it has a sense of timelessness. So again, it's always a meeting of seeming opposites, the, the old and the new, uh, the timeful and the timeless, or the timely and the timeless, right? And so my, my thought here is that uh, the fashion also, and the visual element is also working on this idea of, of the symbolic notion of time. So the throwback look that many of the artists employed in the 90s and early 2000s, it involved nostalgia, but hardly a simple longing for the past. Maybe nostalgia is never simple longing for the past. It's always a pursuit of some kind of expected surplus, a past that is more than the past. This is a particular poignancy, I would think, for an Afro-American past, which involves a living present ever cognizant of a stolen pastness. But like everything else in Neo-Soul, there's a constant confrontation of the past and present, the traditional and the modern, the stasis of the old and the urgency of the new. So there's D'Angelo's hip-hop look, his particular take on the Afrocentric hair revival of the 90s, coupled with his obvious stylistic connections to 70s soul. There's Lauryn Hill and her leadership in the natural hair movement, wearing dreadlocks and bantu knots and afros. Joan Morgan, in her book on Hill, claims that Hill normalized dreadlocks as a pan-African style not necessarily connected to Rastafarianism. Even Ebony magazine credited Hill with the kind of style grounded in a double temporality that I'm attempting to address here, right? They wrote this. They, they didn't call it double temporality. Uh, that's my term. But what they called it was this, or how they put it was this. She, quote, helped to usher in a new standard of beauty for black women, one grounded in the richness and authenticity of their African heritage, end quote. So notice it's a new standard, but grounded in the past. And of course, one of the most recognizable looks in Neo-Soul was the head wrap and arm bracelets and Ankh tattoo of Erica Badu, another incredibly important figure alongside Lauren Hill in the revival of the Afrocentric look. These fashion elements were not simply relegated to album covers and onstage performances. They were a huge part of the videos that artists made to provide a, a visual component to the songs. And like a lot of videos in the 90s, these were meant to be more than just promotional vehicles. They were an opportunity to engage in cinem cinematic creation alongside musical creation. 
let's uh, just briefly touch on on three videos or, or maybe a fourth uh, as well. Do Up, obviously, by um, Lauren Hill. It deals with this idea of confronting two different times right from the beginning. It starts with a... a, a, a it, has throughout it a split screen, right? Where you have two different Lauren Hills. One is based in 1967 and the other in 1998. And we know the dates because of the opening of the video. And so this is part of how her message about promiscuity and about the authenticity of the self is applied on the larger scene, right? So, and there are clever ways throughout the video, if you haven't seen it, you should, to maintain that split screen. It's not like there's just a little dividing line that comes down. And so it shows that these two times that, that are being held apart, perhaps aren't as far apart, really, in the greater imagination uh, as, as they might have been, right? On and On by Erica Badu is another one that has an interesting uh, conglomeration of symbols and so on. We already mentioned the 5% nation uh, influence on this song, and some of that comes out in, in the video where uh, Erica Badu is in this um, more or less rural uh, situation. She's... Uh, she's uh, doing some cleaning and so on. At one point, she even chases the dog and winds up with mud all over her face. And so that's both a comic moment, but it's also around the point where she's referencing the earth as, as part of uh, female identity. And so there's there's the 5% allusion to that. Um, there There's even a part where she pops up in, uh, with a, a piece of straw in her mouth and takes it out in a kind of joking manner. So there's this play constantly um, between the sort of range of Afrocentric symbols and then a kind of lightness to it a kind of humor even with the head wrap when she has at the end she's performing in a barn um, and everyone's dressed in this kind of 1940s uh, jazz style more or less uh, with the big double bass with the bass player that's accompanying her and someone says uh, tell me that ain't my tablecloth looking at her head wrap so there's the kind of lightness to it the whole time her um, video for Next Lifetime is, is perhaps even more striking in some ways. Uh, on the one hand, the premise of the song is that she's with someone else. She's in a committed relationship, but she has somebody that she's attracted to. Well, maybe she can be with him in the next lifetime, right? Because she's not going to leave her current um, relationship. She's not going to betray the person she's with now in order to be with us. So again, it's addressing the issue of, of promiscuity and, and fidelity, but from, from the point of view of someone who remains faithful, but kind of wishes they didn't have to, at least in some way. And so there's this fantasy of the next lifetime. But the way that the video works it out is, is you go from ancient Africa uh, to, um, to the U.S. during um, uh, the civil rights movement, right, and, and the black power movement, um, and then into the future, into the 3,000-something the uh, year of the future, right? And this idea that that, that that part is particularly striking. Well, first of all, the idea that there's a scene in the middle with the Ku Klux Klan and what is ultimately a love song or a sort of ode to forbidden love that one doesn't pursue um, is, is already a kind of striking intrusion of historicism into, into a music video about a quite different topic. But then at the end, uh, the future has them still dressed in these, these Afrocentric clothing and participating in ancient, uh, what, what is labeled as these ancient African selection uh, ceremonies where they're selecting their mates. Um, and yet, of course, it's labeled as being in the, the distant future and the, the sort of, you know, ultimate post-postmodernism. So there's, again, this very strange, interesting take on, um, on temporality there.
And not the most interesting, I suppose, but, but one that I think sums things up well is the video for Brown Sugar by D'Angelo, where it starts with him going to his rehearsal space, and he sees a guy, an older man, from a a previous gen basically at the age of of his grandfather right so someone who's from the jazz age in a way um who's talking about uh you know his ability with women or his past ability with women and sort of trying to talk in this um this somewhat uh rapscallia manner with with d'angelo's character in the film and so you have this meeting of generations both of them hip one of course older and so the hipness is kind of lost and yet still remains in some way authentic both talking about women uh the d'angelo character being somewhat slightly uh not condescending exactly but but humoring uh the older man and so there's this idea of the 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 more things change uh the more they stay the same and yet they change but we still carry something of that past around with us as a legacy as a reminder, even as a kind of ghost. And the question is, what do we do with it? 